about Fly Fishing Internet Radio Podcast, your source for learning more about fly fishing in cold water, warm water, and salt water. Hello, I'm Roger Mays, your host for tonight's show. On this broadcast, we'll be featuring Trey Combs, and he'll be answering your questions on fly fishing for steelhead. This show will be 90 minutes in length, and we're broadcasting live over the Internet. If you'd like to ask Trey a question, just go to our homepage at askaboutflyfishing.com and use the Q&A text box to send us your question. We'll receive your question immediately, and we'll try to answer as many of them as possible on the show tonight. And while you're there, make sure you sign up to receive our announcements so you don't miss out on any of our future broadcasts. Just fill out the form on the right side of our homepage, and we'll let you know when the next live show will be. This broadcast is being recorded and will be available for playback on our website about 48 hours after the show ends. You can also find it on any of the podcast sites like Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. So if you have to leave early, you can return to our website or any of the podcast platforms at your convenience and listen to the recording at any time. If you're out and about on Facebook, Instagram, or X, we'd sure appreciate it if you'd share our podcast. And when you do, use the hashtag AskAboutFlyFishing and hashtag FlyFishing. In fact, if you have a moment, do it right now while you're listening to the show and let other people know about the great show we're producing tonight. The content of this broadcast is copyrighted as the property of the Knowledge Group, Inc., doing businesses ask about fly fishing. When we return, we'll be talking with Trey Combs about fly fishing for steelhead. The Colorado River at Lee's Ferry is called by some the world's largest spring creek. It's a massive, clear-running tailwater fishery that runs 15.5 miles from the base of the Glen Canyon Jam to the upper reaches of the Grand Canyon. At times, it gives the impression of being not one or two, but a series of parallel spring creek-like waterways. The fishing is great, and the scenery is gorgeous. Lee's Ferry Anglers provides professional guide service to this outstanding rainbow trout fishery, as well as food and lodging at Cliff Dwellers Restaurant and Lodge. See for yourself why Lee's Ferry is on every fly fisher's must-do list. Visit leesferryanglers.com or call them at 800-962-9755. That's leesferryanglers.com or call them at 800-962-9755. Before we introduce Trey, I'd like to let you know about the great prizes we have to give away tonight. For our drawing tonight, we will be giving away a one-year membership to Fly Fishers International and a one-year membership to Trout Unlimited. Now, if you haven't registered yet for the drawing, you can do so now. Just go to our homepage at askaboutflyfishing.com and look for the link under Trey's section that says register for a free drawing. Click on that link and fill out the form, and we'll announce the winners at the end of the show. We'll also be giving away a surprise book courtesy of Wild River Press. The book will be about tying salmon and steelhead flies, but only the winner will end up knowing what the title is. Tom hasn't even, uh, Tom Perot at Wild River Press hasn't even told me yet. So surprise, surprise. Now here's how you can win that book. First, you have to be the first person to answer the question at the end of the show. The question will be about something we talk about during the show. And you must submit your answer along with your name, your location, and the text box on our homepage. So listen closely, use your best typing skills, take notes, and maybe you'll win that surprise book from Wild River Press. Our guest tonight is Trey Combs. Trey has been fly fishing, guiding, and writing about steelhead for more than 50 years. His first book was The Steelhead Trout from Amato Publications in 1971. In this book, he described for the first time the ocean migratory habits of steelhead. His second book, uh, Steelhead Fly Fishing and Flies from Amato, in 1976, documented the culture of steelhead fly fishing. 
The color page in that book featuring the flies by Sid Glasso changed steel head fly tying overnight. The flies were tied on upturned eye hooks, while bodies were no longer chenille, but rather dubbing carefully spun and clipped. This was the steelhead Bible for two generations. In 1991, he wrote a book, Steelhead Fly Fishing, that Lyons Books published in New York, and he remembers Nick Lyons telling him the hardback printing would last a couple of years. The entire printing was gone in several weeks. The upshot was the book became the best-selling book in history of his publishing house. During this period, he was also traveling and fishing constantly the flats for tarpon, bonefish, and permit, and offshore blue water game fish. He began taking clients to Costa Rica in 1985 for fly fishing for Pacific sailfish at the Bahia Pez Bella Lodge. Nick Lyons published Blue Water Fly Fishing in 1994, and that book was about nearly 20 years spent fishing offshore, starting with Laredo, Mexico, on the Sea of Cortez. Back then, the huge Dorado were seen daily, and the fishing could be fantastic. He would fish off both coasts of North America, South America, and Africa. For 14 years, he was part of a long-range fly fishing trips, the trips on Royal Star, later on Shogun, and these were specialized 100-foot boats. were called long-range because much of the hull holds fuel, enough for a boat motor from San Diego to New Zealand. For 11 years, he was the lone fly fishing charter master and was soon specializing in striped marlin. He saw more than 1,000 marlin hooked on flies. Trey, welcome to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio. Uh, welcome to the show. Thank you, Roger. I'm glad to be here, and uh, thank you for forwarding me all those questions to uh, stir this whole brain up and get it going. Yeah, yeah. Well, with so much fishing in your life, and folks, that was just part of his history that I just read. <laughs> it's much more involved in that. So Trey, Trey has more information about fly fishing than most of us will ever know or hear in our lives. Um Take advantage tonight and ask Trey questions as we go along, and uh, I know this will be fun and enjoyable for all of you. So let's go. Trey, now you just published Flies for Atlantic Salmon and Steelhead by Wild River Press. Tom uh, Perot the uh, the publisher there. It's a huge, beautiful book, and folks, we do have links to it on the sidebar on our homepage there, so if you want to go out and look at that on the publisher's website you can and that's where you can buy it but um i mean this is just an incredible book i mean it's eight and a half by 11 i think and and over what is it here i'm just looking real quickly here how many pages 10 by 12 yeah it's a a big format tom wanted it uh, 12 inches so that when you open the book and he's using uh, art stock art paper stock uh, right. so that we'd have super resolution with the fly plates. But when you open the book and you've got a double picture in there, you've got a picture that's two feet long or two feet across. So there's a picture like of an Atlantic salmon being held. I, I think that's one by uh, Winston Oss, uh, yeah. a photograph that he had. But, uh, yeah, so some of the advantages of that would be the fly plates or uh, really a dramatic picture like a, a salmon or a steelhead across both pages so but anyway yeah tom yeah. was the the genius behind taking my manuscript and producing a dazzling book i mean the way yeah. he's yeah. laid it out and whatnot beautiful so what inspired you to write this book trey um this will sound a little weird but years ago i think it would be about 
eight or nine years now at least. But I was working a deal with uh, Jack Mitchell, who has a lodge just above me on the plateau of uptown here in Klickitat. And we had a Swing the Fly only program on the Quinault Indian Reservation. And uh, the first group that we had coming over for this was from Japan, and I had a buddy in Japan, Tomo Agashi. And I've known Tomo for 25 years. He was uh, just a kid when he came aboard one of my long-range trips for Stripe Marlin. And so we were down a long run, and uh, there were four Japanese below me, and they were all fishing. And I was following them, and all five of us, all five anglers were fishing flies tied on Waddington shanks. And, you know, I started thinking about that, how revolutionary the different ways we tie flies and the way we fish them. So much had occurred uh, since, uh, well, it had been 30 years, too. So time marches on and these things do change. But I started mulling that over in my mind about maybe it was time to try to put something down to uh, record the differences that uh, that had occurred since steelhead fly fishing that was 1991 so it's been quite a while and that's kind of uh, the inspiration point was i mean i was tying my flies on Waddington shanks so i mean there you go i mean it's quite a bit different than tying it on a beautiful victorian era uh, swept hook with an upturned eye i mean it's quite different but anyway that's how it started and that's what inspired you to kind of document the history and so forth of the yeah, you know, a lot of things. I mean, I I was when I turned this thing over to Tom. Most of the information I'd written down were about fly fishers, but it was also about rivers. Uh, I wanted to include the great of watersheds, the Sacramento, San Joaquin, the Columbia, the uh, Fraser, and of course the um, oh god, I just went blank. The big series of rivers up in Canada. Uh, oh. Dean, uh, not the Dean, but the big watershed above the Dean. God, I'm embarrassed. I can't believe this. But anyway, and uh, but Tom looked at this and he said, you know, Trey, you got three books going, one about the rivers, one about the flies, and one about history. So we've been, I never considered anybody but Tom to do the book. And then so, um, so we kind of massaged this subject. We dropped the rivers out and... Uh, I sent the whole manuscript that I had several years ago to Tom, and Tom says, you know, you need to, you know, the history of steelhead fly fishing going back to John Ben, a name I first came up with a million years ago in the Seattle library. I was going through the forest and stream newspapers, and this guy's name popped up, and that's really how the history started. But Tom says, you've got nothing in here about the history of Atlantic salmon flies. And I knew the history, I mean, the, who are the principals who tie flies in those days, the reference books and stuff. But that's usually how the salmon flies are presented. You know, they give these resources and the reading sources, and then you've got the, the fly patterns that each author lists and so forth. But the why the flies developed the way they did, why were these incredibly complex flies with 25 feathers in them and the Different uh, feathers were married in different colors and different species of birds and stuff. So Tom says, you know, you need to get into that. So I sat down, and it was about five or six months, and it was really intense, where I worked on exactly uh, why these flies had become, what were the dynamics of why these flies got so complicated. 
And the answer was, sounds uh, pretty dull, but the answer was the Industrial Revolution that had created the uh, United Kingdom as the most powerful country in the world. And at the time, during the Victorian era, women's hats were an insane passion, both both sides of the Atlantic, in both the United States and in Great Britain. And to satisfy this demand, the commercial fleets of British ships, which went to every corner of the world, they're bringing back the skins of all these dazzling, beautiful birds from the tropics. And included in those shipments were a number of American water birds, like the egrets and stuff. And the skins were being sent to the so-called hatters back in London and in New York that would uh, take the skins. They'd treat the uh, skins with certain chemicals so that they would not uh, perish or rot or whatever. And then they'd make these hats. Well, the fly tires were at that point just getting into brighter flies, which was an Irish influence. And uh, they got hold of these bright feathers, and some of the feathers just asked to be tied onto a hook. They're too pretty. So that was the beginning, and this was kind of like uh, if you wanted to get beautiful feathers to tie these flies, you just go down to a hatter where they had tons of these flies. I mean, we're talking about skins in the millions annually were being sent to the cities for right, the purpose right. of making exotic hats. So um, the other thing is uh, pretty prosaic, but it's the British were just showing off. It was like fly fishing for Atlantic salmon was the sport of kings, quite literally. This fishing was taking place on these huge estates. The people who engaged in it were quite wealthy. They were all landed. They all had titles. And the flies that these wealthy people demanded were kind of, there's a bit of one-upmanship in this too, but they wanted these uh, gorgeous flies that were terribly expensive. No, no normal person could afford these flies. And these would have, you know, they'd have these things lined up in their fly book by the dozens. So um, it was like the, the Victorian architecture that was, that was so rococo with all the little turrets and so forth and the uh, complexity of the Victorian architecture. Flies were kind of a fly fishing's version of that same thing. The same uh, incentives went into both. But yeah, yeah, so that's kind of a long-winded way of answering your question, but uh, yeah. Yeah, well, tell us about one whole chapter you have in there is is about the birth of the first steelhead fly. How did all that stuff from, I'm assuming that what was happening in England had some effect on the West Coast here in the United States, but I know you ended up doing a lot of research on that first steelhead fly. Tell us, you know, a brief story about that out of your book. Yeah, the birth of the first steelhead flies were a direct spinoff from the first great American trout flies, which became immediately extremely popular. And uh, the most, the best known of these flies, obviously, is the Royal Coachman. And, I mean, the Royal Coachman, during the, the Royal Coachman came out in the 1880s, and that fly was carried west, and within 10 years after the fly was, they were commercially tying that fly in, in New York for Maine brook trout. That fly was the most famous fly in North America, was the Royal Coachman. And the Westerners out west, the first steelhead fly fishing of note 
took place in the Eel River. And that run is extremely complex because the Eel River was back then a very complicated river with various runs and races and so forth. But the lower eel was fairly slow moving and it held fish, especially in the fall. And for people fishing, and a lot of the guys I'm told were fishing out of boats too, but with the silk lines, they didn't have to get the fly down. So they took the row coachman and there was a scarlet ibis, a couple other early flies that came out of the brook trout flies, and they just tied them on a couple sizes larger. And John Ben came along. He was a professional fly tire in San Francisco, and he just added a little red. He changed the uh, tail into red hackle fibers. He added a uh, wing of red between the two of white. He developed the Carson Royal Coachman. The... Um, this will all this is explained in the book, and it's a little complicated. But Ben, to gain some traction for his flies, he modified East Coast flies just slightly and named them after city fathers in Eureka. So uh, there was the Ben's Royal Coachman that was named after John Ben or not Ben Carson Royal Coachman it was named after the Carson family that were the uh, he was the king of the Redwood Empire there. And his two kids, he didn't fish, but his two kids did. There was the uh, head of the bank and so forth. And these guys in town got the fly named after them. And obviously, when they went fishing, they fished that fly. So those flies were simply slight modifications of brook drop flies from the East Coast. And that's how it started. Mm. Um, in about the 1920s or so, they began some of these fly, uh, fly tying supply houses began converting the feather wing flies to hair wings and they charge more for it i mean you can get a lot of white wings out of a duck duck pinions but not a lot of i mean you only get one tail for a deer and uh, the hair on the deer is so much longer than is needed so there's a lot of waste so the hair wing flies originally were quite a bit more expensive until no one ties feather wings anymore but Anyway, yeah, the uh, yeah, first time I think, got going. Yeah, yeah. Hmm. The, I think John Ben was first fish in the eel about 1890. About 1890. Uh, I have a couple. Okay. I have uh, the first flies I saw of his. I actually believe he probably tied them, or his daughter. His daughter was also a professional fly tire. Interesting. Wow, that goes way back. Yeah, you've got a lot of pictures in the in your book about uh, the flies from back then. Yeah, and I see the the Royal Coachman. Uh, <laughs> heritage i guess you could say in those a lot of peacock and bodies and stuff yeah so good yeah so that's just one tidbit out of the book but let's get into some questions from our audience here and maybe we'll tell a couple more stories before the end of the night we're going to talk about sure steelhead right now uh, we did get quite a few questions from our audience on that so let me start out with chris leonard he's in bishop california he said, we've seen a slight uptick in steelhead numbers in the West Coast the last couple of years. There aren't as many, there aren't nearly as many fish as there used to be. What do you think is the cause of the significant drop in number of steelhead? And given that numbers are starting to slowly rise again, what is your prediction for steelhead in, in say, the next 10 years? Boy, Chris, I wish I could, uh, I could wish I, I could predict that. I'd be a lot wealthier than I am. Um, I don't know. 
And I don't know why the numbers of steelhead dropped. Um, everyone's talking about global warming. Steelhead in the high seas feed uh, on squid and on krill. And uh, Tom's Prairie has written a chapter in the book dealing with the feeding, uh, the habits that steelhead have, what they eat in the high seas. But um, I don't think the temperature, the temperatures increasing of the oceans are so slight, and the, the steelhead prefer a temperature range of of uh, 48 to 52 degrees. And uh, but it's they've got enough latitude in there that the ocean warming temperatures wouldn't bring about the decline of the numbers of steelhead. It would have to be the decline of their foods that they feed on. And I don't know whether slight temperatures are changing with the squid population or the uh, krill. I just don't know. But it's alarming. There's also a, a tremendous amount of interceptions. The uh, When steelhead close with the coast on spawning migrations, they... Um, they run into an incredible number of nets. And neither the United States nor Canada allows the commercial fishing on the ocean for steelhead. So the fish have to be dumped. That's bad news and good news. The bad news is that when they're dumped and they're not recorded, we have no clue as to where the concentrations are. Uh, the uh, gill netters, the high seas netters and whatnot, they're fishing the narrow gaps between islands and stuff that would be also the same places that still would be found. So they're trying to intercept uh, salmon where their numbers would be most concentrated, and the same thing would apply to steelhead. So when they get steelhead in their nets, the last thing they want to tell people is that, hey, I got a bunch of steelhead in their nets, and it's going to cause all kinds of grief to the captain of the boat. So they just dump them, and we don't know a thing about what took place or how commonly the steelhead were taken. There was a time when steelhead on the high seas caught in the international fleets were recorded as a bycatch. That's how I actually, 50 years ago, that's how I figured out where steelhead went on the high seas because uh, if an American boat or a Canadian boat or something was fishing off the Aleutians and they got a bunch of steelhead on, on a single net set, the guy would report the latitude and longitude and the number of steel that he got. They'd all be released, but we'd know exactly where that occurred. And mm -hmm. given the number of years that information was available, you could plot out and find out why the, you know, the steelhead went here and then there and, and back and forth and so forth. It took me a little while to figure out that, the, uh, that what was driving the fish was temperature, water temperature. That's why they went northwest and west in the spring and summer and fall, and then they reverse themselves when temperatures cool from the far west. And they've reversed the, uh, the travels from spring and summer. They reverse them in late fall and, and winter till they were off the coast of Oregon and Washington. But uh, it was all water temperature. Yeah, the um, one of the things that Jake Christensen wrote in from Boise, Idaho, he says, are we at the bottom end of a natural cycle, or are low returns going to be the norm from now on? Any thoughts on that? Um, I honestly don't. There's just, there's so many unknowns going on right now, and I, I know that I sound confused, but um, we don't know enough about where steelhead go and why they move where they do other than temperature. Um, mm -hmm. 
And then also, if we do find out, I'll get into this later if someone wants to ask me the question about the Thompson River. But sometimes, and oftentimes, even when we know where steelhead are being intercepted, uh, why their populations are down in a certain river, that the human conflict, conflict involved in their numbers, the government has a choice of either going along with it or uh, not. And often, for the purposes of the economic positive aspects of the money being made, they'll just say, you know, to hell with it. I'm, I'm not going to worry about it. Let it happen, which is why the Thompson is, the Thompson Steelers are nearly extinct right now. And let's, um, let's hold that because we do have a question coming up about uh, the Skeena and the Thompson. But uh, hang tight with that. We'll be right back after an announcement here, and we'll dig into that. The Ugly Bug Fly Shop in Casper, Wyoming, has been serving fly fishers in Wyoming and around the world since 1983. Their selection of top-of-the-line gear and a huge assortment of flies is one of the best in the land. All products are available in their fly shop and online. Looking for advice? Just give them a call, and their expert professional staff will help you with whatever you need. Visit the Ugly Bug Fly Shop today at UglyBugFlyShop.com or call them at 866-845-9284. Again, it's the UglyBugFlyShop.com or call them at 866-845-9284. You're listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio podcast, and we're talking with Trey Combs about a lifetime of fly fishing for steelhead. If you'd like to ask Trey a question, just go to our homepage at askaboutflyfishing.com. Use that Q&A text box to send us your questions. We'll receive your question immediately, and we'll try to answer as many as possible on the show tonight. So, Trey, I always ask my guests at uh, this point in the show, you know, what's going on in your fly fishing world? And I imagine you're taking a big sigh of relief um, after spending all these years on this recent book that you just got published. But fill us in on what's on your schedule and what's up next. Um, I've got a river that runs right behind my house. I came down here for a, this is a, just a tiny little community of a, the whole area. is less than 1,000 people. The town's just a few hundred. So we have a tiny post office, and uh, we've got a little restaurant, and we have a general store. And then the Klickitat River is running right behind us, and it's managed by the Yakima Indian Nation. And they're the ones that supply. There's a um, the federal hatchery that the Yakima Indians have. They plant a small number of steelhead and a huge number of uh, Chinook salmon. The Chinook salmon has always been the big cash crop for the uh, Indians before they were doing, you know, cash, but they were trading dried salmon for other things to the interior. So salmon was the currency of the realm back in the day, Chinook salmon. So uh, they come in the river in about mid-April, or mid-August, rather. And the steelhead come in in late May. The river is um, very discolored during the heat of the summer when the uh, glacier and snow melt up at Mount Adams, is towering mountain near here. And that's the runoff that uh, puts the river out. And then in the fall, it gets cooler. We have beautiful cool days, and the river, the runoff drops, and the river is gorgeous. It's a beautiful river. It's kind of a semi-arid area we live in here. It's not like the uh, coast with uh, evergreens. This is uh, Gary Oaks for the, all the turkeys and ponderosa pine is the timber. In fact, this was a this tiny little town was a uh, 
everybody who worked at the mill here had bought these little homes from the sawmill company. So the homes were built out of beautiful ponderosa pine. And uh, they've been patched up and fixed. They were This is back in the 1930s, so the, the little uh, house I'm in was uh, built almost 100 years ago, 90-some years ago. But anyway, just getting out of being able to not have to get up each day and go to my computer and start <laughs> figuring if my brain can work another day and uh, being able to – I've got a friend down the street who's the subject of a book chapter. He's a super talented fly tire and fly fisherman, Jeff Cottrell, and – we pile up each day to just shoot the breeze, and uh, we've got a, a friend of ours as a guide on the river. He's going to take us on a float here probably uh, next week. Uh, nice. And, yeah, give us a time, time to get out. We don't fish from the boat. Uh, we'll fish a couple of spots. But, if I, you know, if I've got the whole river, I very rarely, if I have my choice, I don't go from pool to pool. My favorite way to Fisher reverse to go to a, a really good spot, get there early enough to where I don't have to compete with anybody. Usually, fishermen floating the river will respect the fact that you're on this one pool and won't fish over you. But um, some of the new guys who are fishing those little um, twin hole, little uh, twin pods and with a, a rowing seat in the middle, and they're fishing a bead and a bobber. They look like a, a water bug going back and forth, and they'll go. They'll fish right in front of you sometimes. <laughs> Literally, you can cast right into their little boat, yeah, and they yeah. pretend they don't even see you. But most of the people are quite curious, so it's possible. Get up in the morning, go to a nice piece of water, and uh, fish it pleasantly. And, uh, you know, if you get a hookup, great. If you don't, that's great, too. But the fishing here can be really good. Roger, it, I mean, I've had spectacular days here where we hooked fish after fish as we went down to a few pools. So, yeah, it can be really good. Oh, enjoying Great. life, it sounds like. Yeah, enjoying yeah, life yeah, and doing a, some fishing. and Yeah, sounds good. Yeah, it's, yeah, it takes a lot of discipline and uh, to take years out of your life to do a book like that. Uh, yeah. Oh, I, I, I can't even imagine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, uh, Robert Mead uh, in Hancock, New York, uh, wrote a, a rather long question here, but I know you want to dig into this. Let me read back what Robert wrote. He says, I have fished for steelhead all over the North Pacific, including the last 20 seasons on the Skeena and all its tributaries. This year I chose to stay home because the run continues to be pounded by environmental changes, commercial fly fishing bycatch, and to a much lesser degree recreational fishermen. How can the Canadian government in B.C. act so irresponsibly when the total run on the Skeena was estimated this year at less than 6,000 fish? The total conflict of interest when guides and lodges continue to lure their clients to come back every year knowing how bad the fishery has become, but put their heads in the sand because they have invested thousands and, in one case, millions of dollars securing their rod days on various rivers. The handwriting is on the wall. Maybe the best example is the mighty Thompson River. Such a tragedy. Isn't it time for a moratorium? So I know you have some background on this, so... Um, Throw in your, you know, your comments on this, Trey. Yeah, I'll try to be brief because this is a this can be a really yeah. complicated question to for Robert. But uh, yeah. the Thompson Steelhead once had runs of twenty and even thirty thousand fish a year, and it had the largest steelhead in the world. It was one of the rivers in Canada that had giant races, and a giant race in Canada is all the males or most of the male fish go to sea for three years, 
and the henfish go to uh, sea for typically two years. So the bucks come back one year older than on other rivers as an average, and they also are uh, genetically predisposed to her size. So a typical Canadian steelhead in one of the giant rivers is 20 pounds. It's a three-year ocean male that weighs 20 pounds, and that's that's on the, uh, the Babine and the Kispiox and the Sustut and so forth up in the uh, Skeena and then the, uh, the Thompson. And Harry Lemire took a steelhead on the Thompson on a fly that he taped out and it weighed 41 pounds and it was, of course, released. But these are extraordinary fish and they put them in, uh, they put the steelhead in stress test in a... a aquarium, long aquarium with running water on them to see how they would hold into the currents under stress. And they performed twice as long as uh, steelhead from any other river in Canada. So they are given to a great strength on top of everything else. And if anybody, you've ever talked to somebody who hooked a Thompson hand of 15 pounds and found his back and gone, that's the reason, of course, the the fish would have had the, this big river behind them as well when they're on the run downstream. But here's the bottom line. the A big industry in Canada that takes place on the lower Fraser is a gillnet fishery for chums. And it is entirely run by the First Nation people. There's 13 tribes that have made arrangements with the government for them to gillnet on the lower river for the chums. And there's a huge processing plant in Vancouver that they take all the chums regardless of sex, both males and females, and they're paid so much a pound for them. And they take them to the fish processing plant. And the males are of no use to them. I think they throw them back in the river. They don't use them for cat food. I've got went up to the factory and interviewed the guy who is the uh, runs the distribution of the row. It's the, the Latin name for the species of chum salmon is Kita, and Ancarinca's Kita, and um, they call the product Kita caviar. It's shipped all over the world, especially to Eastern Europe. They're huge fans of it. If you go to Russia, I've been uh, spent a lot of time in both Eastern and Western Russia. And uh, you'll find an Eastern Russia in the Kamchatka every time you have breakfast. If it's a good place to have breakfast, they'll have caviar on it, uh, salmon eggs on it. But, but anyway, the uh, uh, and I bear with me for just a second, but both in the United States and in Canada, there is, in the United States, there's Endangered Species Act, and in Canada, there's the SARA, or Species at Risk Act. And in both those government federal laws, they provide uh, the uh, subspecies or race has legal standing. So you don't have to be a species to be threatened or endangered or of special concern. If you are a subspecies or a race like the Thompson, which is, uh, I mean, the Thompson is one of the rarest fish in the world. It's a giant race of fish. Then you have standing with the Canadian government and for protection. They won't touch it. They will not even touch it because of the indigenous people who have fishing rights on the lower river. Now, the chums come in in the fall, exact 
it's a perfect overlay of the Thompson steelhead. Thompson fish come in in September and October and November. So do the chums, same exact time. And the lower fissure has got nets for miles. And those nets take the steelhead. The uh, Indians are sick of the word steelhead. They want no part of them, but they will take the fish out of the nets and toss it back in the river, and hopefully the fish will survive. But just upstream of that net is another net, and the mortality of the steelhead has been huge. Um, I can't begin to tell you the number of industrious fishermen, conservation-minded fly fishermen and fishermen in general, who have worked incredibly hard to try to get the government to step in and provide some protection. But the government listed them as endangered or threatened, especially if they listed them as endangered, meaning that if the government does not intervene on their behalf, the fish will become extinct. And it's incumbent upon the government, both Canada and the United States, to develop a plan to prevent that from happening. Well, if the government has to step in and prevent the steelhead from becoming extinct on the Thompson, they would run head-on into the indigenous people there. who uh, And that is considered in Canada and would be considered in the United States a huge success story because the Indians are making a lot of money. The companies that uh, run the, the fish processing plant, they bought the uh, natives' uh, new big boats for the harvesting of the fish and so forth. And it's considered a, a success because they typically the indigenous people do not do well economically. So this is a huge boom. And uh, the hatchery on the lower Fraser, they plant, I think it's well over a million uh, young chums in the Fraser to augment the uh, take. And uh, they do not do much in the way of steelhead. So everything is uh, weighed against uh, steelhead population in the, in the Thompson. Given the odds, that you wonder how any of them survive. So that's, yeah. uh, you know, yeah. it's just, the laws are on the books. If the government wanted to use them, they won't use it. They won't even talk about it. Until there's so, no uh, more fish. <laughs> right? There is almost no more. And uh, there's, uh, oh, I could go on and on about that, but there's, yeah, there's, yeah that's tragic. Yeah. Um, so I it sounds like that, you know, earlier we were talking about depleted numbers of steelhead, but uh, I don't know if it's as common in the U.S., but it sounds like, you know, a lot of the gill netting is taking its toll on the steelhead, even though, you know, they're being released or whatever. So, yeah, I mean, yeah, that's a catch-22, right? Damned for you. Yeah, I've had a wonderful relationship for years for 50 years with the Quinaults. In fact, I did a long article about the Quinaults hatchery program, and I sent the, I took the article and sent it to the tribal council, made copies of it and sent it to the tribal council. So that they, uh, and I only uh, sent the article to the Drake magazine and, uh, until, uh, I wouldn't send it until the tribal council gave it a thumbs up. But the uh, west coast of uh, the Limbic Peninsula, God, those are the largest winter steelhead in the world. Historically, they've been becoming I gigantic. I tell you stories about uh, some of those fish you wouldn't believe. But the Indians have processing plants. They net the living hell out of the lower Quinault, seven miles of the lower Quinault, all nuts. And um, British Columbia has got a huge uh, Indian fishery. 
near the uh, off the Skeena, and there's, I mean, and it's hard. I mean, it's like hard because you don't want the Indians to fail or live uh, in poverty, and yet uh, right. you try to, uh, you know, have it both ways. It's it's very difficult. Yeah, very difficult. Yeah. Yep. Well, let's uh, let's take another quick break, and then we're going to come back and start uh, talking about some uh, fishing. Uh, steelhead fishing tactics and equipment and uh, presentation sure. things like that. So uh, hang okay. tight. We'll come right. right back. Enrico Puglisi flies pride themselves with creating unique and one-of-a-kind flies and fly tying material. Enrico has been experimenting with durable synthetic and natural materials to create flies that catch fish for more than 20 years. His innovative products, including brushes, fibers, and components, have made a major impact on the direction of saltwater fly fishing, and his methods and materials are respected worldwide. Whether you want your flies hand-tied for you or you'd like to tie your own, be sure to visit Enrico Puglisi Flies and browse through their online catalog. Visit epflies.com and do a little shopping today. Again, that's epflies.com. You're listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio. We're talking with Trey Combs about fly fishing for steelhead. If you'd like to ask Trey a question, just go to our homepage, askaboutflyfishing.com, and use the Q&A text box to send us your question. And let's see here. So, um, Trey, let's talk a little bit about equipment for steelhead. Roy uh, Fukushima in Orange, California says it's his first time to target steelhead. He's got a half boat, uh, a half He's, he has a drift boat trip on the Trinity River next week and wondering how it compares to other steelhead rivers. What weight and length spay rod and fly line would you recommend? So got any helpful tips for Roy? Well, the, yeah, the Trinity is, uh, I don't know what, what's running in the Trinity at that time and what steelhead population, but the Trinity's got a healthy population of grills, uh, the smaller half-pounder steelhead, which are fantastic game fish. I... Uh, some of the best fishing I've ever had was on the uh, Klamath in California, which is a tributary, is a tributary of that. And I stood and hardly moved in one spot and caught one uh, uh, little mini steelhead after another. They were running about 19 to 21 inches long. And they're the most beautiful things you've ever seen. And I was using the, uh, a black fly called a spade, little uh, just... It's just some bucktail and some black dubbing and uh, some buck and some hackle in front, simple as it could be. But anyway, the, uh, I've often thought, what would it be like if that run of fish was in Montana in a blue ribbon trout stream where the rainbows were averaging 18 to, or 19 to 21 inches? It'd be, it'd be uh, advertised all over the world. Yeah. And in California, these are just you know these are just half pounder steelhead, but. Um, this is right off the top of my head. I fished that area. I've not fished the Trinity, but I would say, you know, I wouldn't mess with a spay rod. I'd probably fish a, um, you know, a six weight, a nine foot six weight, and um, maybe a nine and a half or so. And uh, that, you know, if he runs into a two, uh, two salt adult fish, he's got a rod that'll take care of that. And uh, if he's into a lot of uh, the half-pounders, uh, the rod would, would uh, not overpower the fish. It would be pleasant fishing that, too, and it would be fun to cast. So that mm -hmm. would be my answer, and I'd probably fish okay. a floating line. What do you consider the most versatile fly rod for steelhead, whether it be a single-handed or double-handed? I'd pick a, 
11 and a half to 12 and a half foot rod, called a switch rod sometimes. Um, that would be a, a rod that you could spay cast and on uh, big water. You could certainly overhead cast it, overhand cast it. And I'd fish it probably in six weight. Uh, that would, a six weight two handed rod of 12 feet is, is much, much more powerful. Uh, than an eight and a half or nine foot to six weight. I mean, uh, mm-hmm. the, the rod has got to be extra stiff at the butt to be able to perform it at 12 feet. So I, that would be a great all-round uh, rod. Okay. That's probably what I would do. Yeah. I would wouldn't hesitate to fish that rod up in the, on the Skeena country. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Uh, Joe Martin in Michigan. He says, "I understand steelies are." Tippet shy. Uh, what do you recommend for leader slash tippet size? Should I expect to use a different approach for fall steelhead than I would for spring steelhead as far as flies and streamers? Yes, uh, yes, very much different. The fall, you can get into low water and you can fish uh, low water flies. I have never found steelhead to be particularly leader shy, uh, but I'm not fishing Great Lakes steelhead, and he may very well be. Um, the I was talking to Roger earlier about this, but um, I've changed the way I fish from when I first started, which was casting a little bit across and down and then mending so the the fly always pointed upstream and into the current. I don't fish that way. I haven't fished that way for a long, long time. And now I drop my rod tip and um, lead the fly and even throwing a mend downstream if I have to. But I want the fly to go downstream sideways which is a grease line technique. And that's there's no other way to fish winter fish to get a fly down if you don't do that. If you try to mend the fly so it points upstream, the current will push the fly up, uh, push the line up, and then the fly will be right in the surface. There's no way to get the fly down if you do it that, if you do it that way. I, in the old days, we would cast out, we'd mend and mend and mend, mend like crazy to keep that fly out in the, in the river. Nothing wrong with that. I caught a lot of steelhead that way. But it's just more effective to lead the fly. And that's the way, all, you know, the early days of Atlantic salmon fishing and today, too, that's how you did. You led the fly. But um, let's go back to Roe. Um, yeah, and you were oh, saying Joe, that. that Joe was, Martin. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You were saying I, I, earlier uh, before the show that that was super important for winter steelhead, even more so than, than spring, yeah, right? the, um Yeah, Roger, thank you. Um, the uh, spring, even if it's uh, summer on the spring steelhead, are going to be coming into cold water, and uh, I'm not going to be inclined to uh, fish a, a floating line in a dark fly as much as uh, I would be in the spring where I probably will be uh, sinking a fly, and I could go to, to super bright colors much as you would for winter steelhead. There might be some hot pink flies, that sort of thing. But um, I think there's a huge difference in how you'd fish from high water, spring water that's cold, and fall fishing where the water is as low as it's going to be and very clear. And then, uh, you know, I'm fishing skinny flies with a floating line, and in the spring I'm fishing, I'm sinking a fly, and oftentimes I'm fishing a a bright fly. That would be my my take. Regarding, let me go real quickly, go back about the tippet material. Right. the if I'm uh, even if I'm leading the fly and the fish can uh, ostensibly they can see that leader, 
I'm still not terribly concerned about it. I just don't think that steelhead are naturally that uh, leader shy unless the river is gin clear and super low. And then I might be a little bit concerned. The um, Some of the new leaders do not test well, is not strength, and they do not wear well. Uh, I think they can be more more easily broken off. Some of the old-fashioned leader material that we had and we still do have is a, a little more coarse, but it's tougher stuff. And if I'm going to be fishing all day for a couple of days or three days to get into one good fish, I'll probably go to the heavier uh, material. I won't go into a, a fluorocarbon where I take the chance of, even if I can use a heavier weight leader, I just stay away from it. I fish a more primitive uh, leader material that's tougher, it has better knot strength and so forth. What is that, Trey? What do you Oh, use? gosh. Um, God, I have to look at my box now. I just, <laughs> they're, they're the same types of leaders are, the same types of leaders are in all kinds of brands because they come out of uh, just a few manufacturing places. But the fluorocarbon, especially a really light, I just, I'm not hot on fluorocarbon unless it's in the heavier deals. I might use 15-pound fluorocarbon, you know, or 18-pound fluorocarbon or something like that. But otherwise, um, gosh, I'd have to go and look look up what the deals are. But some of the, uh, just the, what are the big names and, and the leader materials that are out there that are not fluorocarbon um, is what I would pick is what I'm saying. Oh, what weight? Like, uh, I mean, what's, what strength? Uh, yeah, for winter fishing, I typically uh, use 12-pound. Mm-hmm. And um, sometimes, uh, like if we're the Quinault and we're, we have a chance of getting into a really huge fish, uh, I'll use 15-pound leader material. Okay. Uh, and, and you just uh, use straight leader material, no tapered, nothing like that? No. I and, yeah. uh, If I'm fishing, yeah, no, I just, uh, I'll use one drop-down. Um I might use a 25-pound test straight run and then knot it to a 15 or something. Uh, okay. Rather, I, I don't use a, I don't screw around tapered leaders much. Yeah. Uh, I, you know, fishing, yeah. Yeah. If I'm uh, in the fall, yeah, I'll fish a tapered leader. Uh, it turns over a fly. If I'm up and fishing in the surface film, it'll turn a fly over better if it's tapered rather than, but, you know, a, if you're fishing a 20 or 25 pound straight run to the knotted tippet, that's going to turn over no matter what. You know, no problem. Okay. Okay. Um, Norm Sawyer in Granite Bay, California, wrote in and says, uh, "Trey, what's your favorite steelhead fly to use in British Columbia rivers?" Uh, my my favorite fly is a is Frank Amato's fly introduced to me a zillion years ago as a night dancer. And that's uh, I, the first Canadian river I fished was the Sustat, got a zillion years ago, and, and Frank sent me this little box. And he says, here, take this box with you. And I opened the box, and he said it was a couple night dancers he tied. And he says, fish these with confidence. And I've been hmm. fishing the night dance. I tied one of those flies on, and I got a 29-inch hen steelhead that weighed exactly 10 pounds. Hmm. Um those are bullets, um, and uh, I've been fishing night dancers 
And I oftentimes do not fish. I usually don't tie flies on hooks anymore. I fish a, a sacrificial hook, or I'll fish a uh, I'll fish them out of Waddington shank. And I know that will gross people out a bit, but the value of that is uh, you, the fly swims better, and uh, the hook you're using will be like a, a fine wire Japanese number, uh, say uh, four which is a really small hook, or a six. Now, I've had steelhead here on the click at that bust this number six flies hooks in half on the impact. But um, those uh, number fours, especially if the barb is pinched down or it's barbless, uh, the fish barely has to touch it and they're hooked. And uh, they're unhooked with almost no damage. And if, even if they're hooked in the top of their head or something, it's not going to be lethal where you're fishing a number one um, old style uh, hook and that uh, fly gets uh, crosswise in the fish's mouth it could it can kill them I've seen it so uh, you know it's not, so not explain, very traditional explain that in more detail what you're talking about here on how that fly is constructed okay you've got a, a Waddington shank which it came out of the uh, United Kingdom and it's a double wire uh, and it has an eye on the front. The wire runs down, forms a loop at the end, and the wire comes back and ends at the side of the upturned eye. Mm -hmm. So you have um, a, a double hook, which is additional weight, which is uh, one of the benefits of that setup. And then to that, you tie down, you lash down uh, a wire, a plastic-coated wire, which will test about uh, 20 pounds, say. And uh, the wire, you make a loop at the end of your Waddington, and you wind the uh, double. Wire is doubled as you come back with the loop, and it goes through the eye of your Waddington and tucks underneath the hook, and it's all lashed down. And then you, uh, I typically put epoxy over the whole thing, and I tie a whole bunch at once. And in that loop... Uh, you can have a, a Japanese or a bait hook style offset hook that threads through the wire, and it's, you can point, have it pointing up or you can have it pointing down. And the advantage of pointing up, it makes the fly or the, the uh, resulting fly uh, fairly uh, uh, weed-free or snag-free. So I can't tell you the number of times fishing for winter fish over the peninsula I've cast the fly right onto a pile of rocks. Now, not, I don't mean the rocks are breaking the surface, but it's, there's a run there with a tremendous amount of structure. Mm -hmm. Sometimes you'll lose a fly in there, but, uh, but Roger, the, the uh, hook pointing up yeah. uh, will float down over that and won't hang up. Nothing worse than and actually seeing a, a steelhead in a run and then hooking a uh, rock above it, and you're struggling to break that off, and sooner or later, I mean, I'm almost for sure you'll move the fish out of there. But mm -hmm. um, So you can get a weedless. To keep the fly riding properly, uh, I oftentimes will use uh, small lead eyes that tuck underneath the, the water. Yeah, keep it. Yeah, bottom. Yeah, and, they, yeah. and they compensate for the hook riding up. Yeah, so yeah. The, the, uh, yeah. So it's, they're not pretty cool. flies. Well, you know, they are pretty flies in a lot of ways, but uh, they function beautifully. Yeah, yeah. 
Steve Schramm in Petaluma, California asks, uh, what's your favorite low water steel steelhead fly? Um, I probably <laughs> it gets sick of my answering it this way, but I probably fish a black fly with uh, with the dark blue or and purple highlights. Not to bury this guy with a bunch of uh, stuff here, but uh, I have a series of flies I call steel flash flies, and they're black and blue, black and purple, and um, black black. But I use purple and blue as highlights for for black, mm-hmm. and those are my standard flies that I fish for all summer fishing. And you can get uh, Waddington shanks all the way down to as short as 15 millimeters. So you can have a fly that's, you know, two and a half inches is all. And, and sparsely dressed, there's not much to it. Um, I promised, uh, Roger, I promised you earlier I'd take a quick reference here. But uh, years ago, uh, I have, have a friend, uh, Chico Fernandez. He's one of the pioneers in saltwater fishing down in Florida. All right. And, uh, wow. and Chico and I have been buddies. Uh, we were both on the show circuit for years and years. And... I was coming into a Long Beach show, and I was unpacking uh, the uh, taxi cab that taken me over from the airport, and Chico was pulling in, and I said, hey, Chico, what are they biting on? And Chico says, that's right, they're, for salt water, it's a white fly, and for, uh, for fresh water, it's a black fly. And uh, <laughs> that, uh, that stuck with me a long time, because this, uh, especially for summer fishing, uh, black steelhead fly with highlights, purple or dark green or, or or dark blue especially those have become almost standard and, and uh, a couple of years ago I fished Norway several rivers in Norway and uh, a lot of the guys they were fishing uh, salmon flies that were virtually they're on t- uh, tubes metal tubes but the flies were the colors of the flies were perfect for steelhead fly fishing they were black with some uh, dark blue highlights, or bark, or some purple highlights. But uh, so yeah, black. That's why the uh, I love low water uh, a night dancer tied low water. It's a beautiful thing. Yeah, same uh, fly. Yeah. With go ahead. Well, you did a uh, you did a whole chapter in your book on black flies. So, uh, yeah, I did. No. Uh, yeah, I did indeed. Yeah, when I began still at fly fishing. Most of the, oh, well, all the flies I fished had white wings. You know, the Royal Coachman, the Parmachine Bell, especially the um, Skycomber Sunrise. God, how many floats did I tie over the years? The orange-bodied flies, the uh, polar shrimp, um, those were all flies with the bright bodies of some sort, and then they had white wings. And Well, the uh-huh. green butt skunk and the, and the skunk, those were white-winged flies. And uh, that trip I described in the chapter in the book, A Black Fly for Steelhead, was the first time that I fished uh, Frank Amato's Night Dance around the uh, Deschutes. And the first time I fished it on the first run I fished was an 11-pound, most beautiful steelhead you've ever seen. It looked like the most gorgeous, giant rainbow trout that you've ever seen in Montana. It was just Mm. pearl white with a thin pencil-like, about a pencil width, pink line down its side, just stunning, and then a little bit of pink on its gills. Um, 
it was still the most one of the most beautiful fish I've ever seen of any species. But uh, but yeah, the um, uh, black. So that's the it's an uncomplicated uh, answer to the question. Is I I fish black flies in the summer. In the winter, I've got these these steel flash flies. I tie for winter fishing on the, some sort of platform, and uh, then I put use you know hot pink and hot orange, especially early in the morning where there's almost it's almost still dark, where there's just a little bit of light in the water, and, and you fish one of those uh, hot pink flies, steel flash flies, and it just lights up the river. And I've seen fish just come out of their socks to grab one of those flies that way. Then in the middle of the day, and in winter for winter fish, I'll put on a black and blue fly, and uh, and nail them. So it's, for me in the winter, it's more time of day. If early early in the morning, I'll fish something that lights up the river. Yeah, um, Kurt Finlayson in Cache Valley, Utah, wrote and he says I'm relatively new to spay casting. I fished for steelhead with conventional fly fishing tactics. And I'm interested in fishing them with for them with spay. There's a lot of information about spay casting, but not as much about spay fishing. Once the spay cast is made, can you talk about what you try to do with your fly and line after the cast is made? And maybe this is the same answer you gave earlier. But um, well, uh, yeah, real quickly, if I'm winter fishing and I'm trying to get a, a fly down, I'll cast slightly downstream across the river. And I'll try to overcast, that is to cast a little farther than I really need to. And when the fly lands, I'll pull the fly up, pull my rod from a nearly horizontal position after the cast, and I'll pull the fly. I've got a fairly straight line. I'm tight to the fly with a straight line. And I'll raise the rod, and I'll flip a mend upstream. I'll flip some line upstream. So my fly line goes in an L-shaped, leading to the fly, straight out of the river, and, and say, uh, if I'm across from me, it hangs a left, and there's the fly. And then I drop my rod immediately again and let the line that I've thrown upstream catch up with the fly. And the fly's on a free sink because the uh, I've given, as I, now I'm going to lead the fly. I'm not going to mend, but I'm going to uh, lead the fly and as the line catches up with the fly, the fly's down. It's already sunk. So in the old days, I would have then began mending, throwing line out on the river to mend and slow the, slow the time that it takes the fly to get from the far side of the river to my side of the river. If for winter fishing, that will immediately put the river current pushing against my fly line and raising it to the surface. So to keep the fly line down, the fly's down, the line and the fly are even across the river, I then lead the fly. That is to say my point of my rod is pointing downstream ahead of the fly, and the fly line may even belly a bit. But the fly is going from the far side of the river to my side of the river much faster, but it's doing broadside. So when it goes by a holding steelhead, it's not going to go by with the tail of the fly in its face. It's going to go by with the whole side of the fly coming down in its face. And the advantages of this is that when the, when the steelhead grabs the fly, usually it's hooked in the corner of their mouth. 
as you tighten on that fish, uh, I normally don't strike steelhead. I normally just tighten on them. And the fish will be hooked that way. Now, if I'm summer fishing, I don't throw that huge upstream end. If I'm not trying to sink the fly, I don't throw that huge upstream end. As soon as the fly uh, crosses the river and lands, then I lead the fly all the way through. And um, if you read uh, Jock Scott's uh, Grease Line Fishing, the key to the whole Grease Line Fishing is that you lead the fly. The greatest mm-hmm. misunderstanding I've ever seen is when people read Gre- uh, Grease Line Fishing and they somehow thought that they were fishing a wet fly the way a, a dry fly was. And the uh, British do not use drag the way Americans do. British use drag to describe what happens if the fly line begins dragging the fly around. That's drag. That's very descriptive of a fly that's being dragged. Where mm-hmm. in America, if we throw a dry fly upstream and the current begins to act un- unnaturally, then we say, oh, it's, it's drag. Not the same at all. So, uh, but anyway, the only difference is that upstream men, and I do it even in summer if I want to get a fly, you know, a couple feet down uh, and uh, cold morning and I want to sink a fly, I'll do the same thing. I'll cast across, throw an upstream end, give it some slack so the line and the fly get together, and when they do, I lead that fly all the way through. And so it gives that, that men gives it time to sink. Uh, and one of the yeah, the, uh, it's the, that L, and the L is, yeah. the uh, end of the, the point of the L is, upstream, is pointing upstream. Mm-hmm. So as the uh, current carries it down and straightens, it will automatically straighten the line out, um, especially if a heavier current is where that fly is. And as the uh, fly line catches up with the fly and they're running together, the best thing you can possibly do is go with it. Not try to mend out, but just go with it and let the fly quickly swim across the river. It takes a shorter time to cross the river when you're leading the fly, but it's it's down, it's staying down. So yeah, 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 and it, giving them a broadside view. Yep. Uh, uh, yeah. So yeah, there you go, guys. Tip of the night on presentation there. Um, another question: Do the steelhead feed while they are running up the the tributaries, or do they? hit out of instinct like salmon. I've heard stories of steelhead that they've opened up the stomach, they've killed the fish, and they've opened up the stomach, and they found in it. But the steelhead that are ocean-running steelhead, not uh, grills, not the, the little uh, half-pounders, which may uh, feed, uh-huh. uh, once they're into a, a spawning mode, especially the bucks, uh, if they find, if there's... If you find stuff inside of a steelhead stomach and you can find debris, pieces of bark, pine needles, something that's fallen down the river that they lunge at, then they're not digesting it. Mm-hmm. I think if a steelhead is on a spawning run and you put a, a bait fish in their stomachs, they wouldn't digest it. It'd still be there a, a month later. Mm. I don't yeah, think so the steelhead actively feed most times in rivers. They just, yeah. they just don't. It's um, just more instinctual, yeah. Of, I do. Or, uh, also, I think that, uh, you know, a steelhead that is, especially the bucks, bucks are, are instinctively aggressive. 
the um, the larger bucks, uh, enormously so. They'll chew on uh, any other buck that comes near them, to, and especially if they're in the neighborhood of, of a handfish or female. So, you know, a buck is parked, and bucks love to park in soft water. I've had incredible experiences with that where we get a piece of soft water that you normally would wade right through to get your fly in heavier water, and uh, bucks will pile up in, in water with almost no current. But if a fly suddenly appears in front of their face, I think they hit it just out of irritation. Yeah. It's just one yeah. more thing that's in their face. Yeah. And uh, we've seen some big bucks in the West End that uh, will attack. We've watched them attack uh, smaller bucks. Uh, yeah, a couple dandies we had a, our guide uh, on the, in the Quinault. He was jabbering like crazy when we came in, Richie Underwood. He was saying he saw this enormous steelhead, the biggest one he'd seen in years. Was, he said it was 30 pounds, and he ought to know. And it had a 25-pound steelhead across its back. It grabbed it across its back and held it and shook it. Um, really chews up those fish. But that's bucks chew, on them, chew their way through that, don't eat. You know, handfish will come in, spawn, and hightail it for the ocean again. The big bucks in Canada, they never, ever return. They're one, they're one cycle fish. Oh, really? They go yeah. in, they chase around other bucks, and uh, they die either in the river or they die on their way drifting down to saltwater. They don't make it back ever. But the hens do. The only repeat spawners in those in those Skeena tributaries are. Uh, our henfish that have come in after two years, and they'll go to ocean again, go out to sea, go through the uh, whole, uh, all the way to the Aleutians and back. And when they come in and spawn a second time, um, they'll that will be the only fish they ever do. And they'll never, they almost never come back a third time. Just, oh, they get okay. too old and there's too much wear and tear. Yeah, yeah. Well, we only have a few minutes left, but I wanted you to... Um Tell us about what you consider another very effective and fly that you've been using for forever, I guess, and that's the muddler, which many yeah. people that just fish for trout use the muddler. But I, I, until I was reading your book, didn't realize it was such a popular steelhead fly. So want to give us some background about that from your book? Sure. Yeah, I am. Um... Actually, I, I first fished the mubber on the uh, uh, Big Hole River in Montana, and uh, I was a teacher right out of college, and I didn't have a penny. So I was using locally, uh, I got some some Columbia blacktail deer skin, a pack, some patches of it, and I you can buy turkey for next to nothing. And that's really what the fly's all about, oh, some uh, gold tinsel. And uh, so I was totally ignorant of how to tie the fly or how I was supposed to tie it. The pictures you see of it are the Montana pictures where the head's pretty big. And uh, if you've ever fished a mudder that way as a wet fly for steelhead, it just it doesn't fish right. To get the fly pulled up and, and waking, you need to take a hitch in the head behind the head. And if the head's really big like that, the mudder can get crosswise and will start speller. Uh, the uh, the tie point behind the head is too far back, 
and the head offers so much water resistance it doesn't fish properly. So if I'm going to fish in a muddler uh, waking, and that's about the only way I'd fish it for steelhead, although I'll get into this in just a second, but I, I tie a small head, and uh, it doesn't have to be a dense. It doesn't matter because the head is only going to be there to create a wake. So I tie a small head, I tie it sparse, and I take the hitch behind the head and make sure the hitch comes out underneath the throat of the fly, and then I wake it. And uh, a waking fly is a totally different animal than either a dry fly or a wet fly. If the breaking the, uh, if you get underneath the water and look up at the surface of the water, it's like a mirror. You break that surface film, and that it creates a splash, and that's uh, symptomatic of all kinds of life that's in the surface and struggling. And I think that's what. I mean, it's exciting. I don't know of a single game fish, hardly a game fish in the world, that is not attracted to some subtle splashes in the surface. It can be a marlin, it can be a, a bluegill. They're all the same. It's something struggling up there. Mm-hmm. So I put right. a, a hitch behind that muddler, and uh, I, I, that's the way I would fish it all the time. It, it's an intense fishing. For the, most of the uh, people listening to this who fly fish for steelhead have, fished, have hitched muddlers. But uh, that's my take on uh, the muddler as a, as a dry fly in the summertime. Um, in the summer, primarily, then, okay? Yeah, but uh, the muddler, a lot of people now are fishing the muddler, uh, running it deep, practically on the bottom. I've, I've heard about this for, God, 25 years. Uh, I had a series of hooks that Gamagatsu made for me years ago, and uh, they were roll point, or I called them big point, but I, uh, they were called Tracom's big game hook. And uh, Gamagatsu made tens of thousands of them. And they changed changed the way uh, people fished saltwater overnight because they were so incredibly secure. I'm flying here. I, mean, I know we're running out of time, but uh, I was in fishing off Venezuela for white marlin, and we lost every marlin we hooked. We couldn't we couldn't hold them. And the hooks we were using was old-style uh, mustads that we sharpened up and whatnot. And they were terrible. And uh, I, I went home, and I was hoping to go back the following year for whites. And the mo- most dramatic game fish in the world is, is a white coming down off, because their huge pectoral fins are like wings of a bird. But anyway, and the, and the fish light up. They get uh, neon blue. But anyway, uh, I was in a uh, hardware store, and they had some of these uh, uh, halibut hooks made by Gamagatsu. So I bought some in, in size six, and they're six odd, and I tied flies on them, and every white marlin that uh, grabbed that fly was hooked. And I even had one marlin that missed the fly but got hooked in the bill, about a third of the way down the bill, and the that point of that hook was so sharp, and the uh, curvature of it was so perfect that it actually penetrated the bill. And the, we fought the fish and got it in, for its release, and it was hooked on the bill, and that's amazing. I mean, they had made it. So I went back and got a hold of Gamagatsu, and I said, hey, you guys have got a hell of a hook here. Let's uh, take the uh, you know offset out of it and make them straight. 
And uh, now that style is used in steelhead flight tying a lot because it's, you know, a soft, a soft, soft mouth fish like steelhead or Atlantic salmon. Um, those uh, that style hook just it disappears. It's just in their mouth and it's not going to get out. So, um, but anyway, that's yeah. uh, interesting. Back to the muddler. Story. I've yeah. run into guides who fish mudlers right in the bottom. Yeah, know, as a wet yeah. fly, and uh, and then. Uh, Jack Mitchell, in my book, are uh, super mudlers. Jack Mitchell ties them for winter fish. And uh, he fishes them, he sinks them, even though it's got a muddler head and they're bright colored. But the fact that the flies are moving water creates a whole other dynamic. Besides breaking the surface, for winter steelhead, you're fishing them, the flies down. But the, the fly is moving water, so it's setting out impulses that are different from a fly that's streamlined. Right. Um, yeah, it's, and I can't explain that, uh, Roger, I don't know the sound that it makes, or, but it's, it creates a pressure wave that's different from a fly that's streamlined. Right. And, right. uh, yeah, so it's, it's a different breed of cat. It's, uh, there's no fly in the world that has more different dimensions to it and how it can be fished than a mudler. Yeah, yeah, very, very universal and. In a lot of different ways, yeah. yeah. Yeah, you can fish them dry, you know. Uh, right. Lens, yeah, yeah or, or you can fish them right in the bottom, and you can yeah. tie them in colors or tie them in brown, the, the way they're originally designed. Yeah, and probably even work for bass, <laughs> you know, on the surface. Oh, making oh, a, yeah, yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, all the, so many of the waking flies that have come to the fore, are variations of the muddler, and uh, mm -hmm. you know they take they splay out the sides and, and make little gills that stick out, and glue it that way so it rocks. You know all kinds of of uh, ways. Uh, there's a new fly that I put in the book where it looks like it's an offset uh, a hook that's been bent severely bent. It's not. It's the way the fly is constructed, the way the deer hair is laid in there. Very clever. Uh, I'm, I apologize, I can't tell you the name of the fly right off the top of my head, but it's in the book, in that section. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I don't know if I could find it quick enough in here. Oh, you've got several of them in here. So, well, anyway, we're out of time, Trey. So, um, yeah, uh, I hope I didn't get to about roll over too many of your questions with too much technical jargon. But uh, <laughs> no, uh, hey, our audience like, likes that. They like okay. that. that in the weeds, nitty gritty. Uh, tell us how it's done. So, I think yeah. we gave him a lot of great tips on presentation tonight, on how to work those flies. Much different than, like you said, you started. So, uh, uh, they should take that and run with it. Uh, yeah. So, uh, go ahead, Roger. I was just going to add that. I, yeah. yeah, I was just going to add that uh, in recent years, I don't fish with a uh, ever fished with a steelhead reel. It's not just click. I don't fish with that steelhead river that's got a drag for whatever it's worth. So you don't fish with a reel with a drag? No. No. And what do you use, your hand? Yeah, rim control. And I've, fished, yeah. I've taken some big steelhead with, with no rim control. I've got a loop reel that, uh, that you've got to get your hand in there. It's not, not, it's not uh, really great. But, uh, yeah, <laughs> for steelhead and Atlantic salmon, even for Atlantic salmon, and they, that's the big difference between Atlantics and steelhead is that some of your Atlantics get so huge, and they are—they don't spend their energies by jumping around the river as much. And uh, you get a, 
I've never caught one this large, but you get a 40-pound Atlantic, and you've got your hands full, and, and you're yeah. going to have it full for a while. And I don't think I'd, I, I, you know, given the size of the hook shoes and stuff, I don't think that that having a dragon is going to do make any difference at all with Atlantic salmon. Yeah. I think you're going to it's going to get down to your rim control anyway. But yeah, so yeah, and I love That's the sound the of that click. <laughs> <laughs> I do. You know. Well, Trey, we've got to cut it off here. We're running out of time. We've run over, um, but uh, stick with me. We're going to be giving away a one-year membership to Fly Fishers International, a one-year membership to Trout Unlimited, and we're also giving away that surprise book, courtesy of Wild River Press from Tom Perot. And I, I, I'm wondering what that book is, but anyway, <laughs> the book's going to be about tying salmon and steelhead flies, uh, but only the winner is going to end up knowing this. I, I've never had anybody do this, but Tom's creative, as you know. So, so uh, have, you, have you opened the package and see what the book is? No, I don't have it. He's sending it directly, so I don't know. Either. Oh, okay. So, so, yeah, so maybe, well, I don't know what the book will be. Okay. <laughs> I yeah. don't have no clue. We'll find out after the show. So, okay. well, listen, um, Reeling and Healing Midwest is a nonprofit organization that champions fly fishing retreats for women surviving cancer and battling all types of cancer. Their mission is to introduce women to the healing powers of the sport of fly fishing and provide a one-of-a-kind experience on and off the water. This is accomplished through the elements of fly fishing, positive camaraderie, peer coaching, and a nurture and support network, which in turn renews the spirit of each participant. Reeling and Healing Midwest is in need of trout flies, waders, leaders, and fishing equipment and other items. To view their current wish list and to learn how you can support their retreats, uh, visit fishon.org. Fishon.org or call 616-855-4017. 616-855-4017. Just a quick reminder to everyone, before you leave the website tonight, please take a minute and give us your feedback about the show. You can find the link on our homepage in the section under tonight's show that says, what do you think of this show? Click on that link, leave us your comments, and we'd really appreciate it. Well, now it's time to give away some prizes. And the winners for our drawings are randomly selected from the show's registration database. Uh, so if you didn't register for tonight's show, it's too late now, but make sure you do so for our next show. Uh, so you don't miss out on some of these great prizes that we have to give away. If you are one of the lucky winners, we'll contact you after the show and collect uh, your information so that we can deliver your prize to you. So first, we'll be giving away a one-year membership to Fly Fishers International. And to learn more about FFI, go to flyfishersinternational.org, flyfishersinternational.org. A uh, great uh, organization to support and be part of, uh, so check them out. Um, and it looks like our winner for that is Gordon Larson in Washington. Gordon Larson in Washington. So congratulations, Gordon. I'm sure you'll enjoy your membership to FFI. And now we'll give away a one-year membership to Trout Unlimited. And to learn more about Trout Unlimited, go to tu.org, tu.org. And another great organization to support. Uh, both these organizations do a lot to help us conserve and, and protect fish. So uh, Check them out. And our winner for that is, let's see here, it's going to be Tom Snyder, Tom Snyder in Pennsylvania. So Tom Snyder in Pennsylvania, congratulations. And um, I'm sure you'll enjoy your membership with Trout Unlimited as well. So now we're going to give away a surprise book, courtesy of Wild River Press and Tom Perot. And the book is about tying salmon and steelhead flies. Only the winner will end up knowing the title, <laughs> unless we can dig it out of him later, Trey. Anyway. Uh, maybe uh, maybe so, it'll be the book I wrote. Who knows? 
Yeah, yeah it might be. You just don't know. Oh, one of our one of our listeners, Treg, in Moscow, Adiso, says, my best day on the Deschutes was with a muddler. So there you go. Uh, uh, there we go. Um, I, I never did mention that most of my Atlantic salmon fishing took place in Russia, which you can't do anymore, obviously. So Yeah, yeah. Well, maybe someday we'll do again, but I think Hopefully. it's going to be a while. Well, let's see yeah, who can I, win I this book. Now, Trey, at the, earlier in the show, I asked him what the um, what the most versatile fly rod for steelhead would be if he were to pick one. So tell me out there, folks, what that rod is that he mentioned earlier, uh, and uh, and we'll go from there. Um, and so uh, sometimes it takes do a I few have, minutes. Do I have to, time uh, to get a 30-second story? Sure, while we're waiting for the answers to come in here. Go ahead. Okay, yeah, I was, uh, when I was on the pro staff for TNT, uh, I'd known Harry Lemire for a long time, and I I checked this out with the owner of the company, but anyway, uh, Harry was coming by, and I was shooting the breeze with him, and I asked Harry, I said, you know, if you could pick any rod in the in here and take it home with you, what would you pick? And I said, I'll, I'll ask you this, and I think about it, and he says, when the show's nearly over, come by and pick up your rod. And he came by, and the rod he picked up with was a 10-foot six-weight with a slightly longer cork handle. And uh, he fished that the rest of his life, from, and for really? winter fish, for winter, yeah. And he, uh, it was a switch rod. Uh, we had two models, one with a regular uh, Wells pull, Wells grip, and the other with a longer full wells grip that could be fished two-handed if you needed to. And uh, Harry used that delicate little rod, pretty pretty powerful uh, down in the bottom end, but he used that little rod for years and uh, gave him great pleasure. You know? So there's well, a... Let's see oh, here. Um, okay, we've got a bunch of uh, answers coming in here. It looks like... Um, let's see here. And you've got to tell me if uh, this is good enough to qualify. I've got here 11.6 to 12.6 six weight. Is that yeah. close enough, or do you want something yeah. closer? No. That's close enough? Yeah. That'll do it. Yeah, okay, that, Bob Younger. Calls. Yeah. You know, that's a rod that you could have. You could buy it. You could get it in a four weight. Five weight, six weight, you could even get on a seven weight, which would be a pretty stiff rod down the bottom end. And you could take that winter fishing just fine. It's, and also, uh, if you're a, a weak caster and you go to Alaska to fish for rainbows and you're fishing one of those bunny leeches, they're almost unbearably hard, to, to, almost impossible to cast if you're a weak caster. But with a two-headed rod and overhead casting or breeze, so you get one of those rods in four pieces, you stick it in the bush plane, and away you go. There you go. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, Bob, you need to send me your address. You can do it in the same uh, text box you just um, answered in, and give me your shipping address. I've got your email. I've got your name. And uh, we'll get uh, Tom Perot to send you out that surprise book. Once you get it, let me know what it is. <laughs> <laughs> that never happened before. So anyway, uh, yeah, I hope you enjoy what it is. And, uh, it's going to be about Atlantic and uh, salmon and uh, steelhead flies. Well, Trey, 
it's been fun talking with you. I could talk all night, or I could let you talk all night. Let's put it that way. <laughs> uh, it's great fun to let, let an old man ramble on and uh, talk about uh, some things he did, yes. Yeah, yeah, so and nice maybe we can me. get together again and talk about blue water fishing if you want to revisit that someday because that's uh, – Oh, I'd I did love get to your, do that. Yeah, I did get your book, as you recommended. Uh, Trey uh, did publish that, uh, Blue Water Fly Fishing. I was able to get a, a, a use copy out on um, on Amazon. So, folks, if you want to check that out, that's an incredible book, too. So, anyway, uh, thanks so much for being on the show tonight. And um, My pleasure, uh, wish, Roger. My wish pleasure. You all the best. Fun. Okay. Thank you so much. Oh, sure. Hopefully uh, you all have found the podcast archive on our website. If you haven't, just look for the link on the top line menu. In that archive, you'll find all of our past shows. Over 385 shows in which you can search by keyword, keyword phrase like steelhead, Atlantic salmon. And, uh, and I know you'll find a lot of shows that, uh, you'll enjoy out there. So our next broadcast will be on November 1st, uh, 7 p.m. Mountain, 9 p.m. Eastern time. And on that show, I'll interview Jim Stenson. And our topic for the show will be South Florida's fishing paradise. Jim is the founder of Sweetwater Travel and has fished worldwide, but finds South Florida one of his favorites. His fishing adventures from Sanibel to the tarpon capital of the world, Boca Grande, to rivers like the Manatee and the Little Manatee, and the Micaca River in Sarasota County, and the Peace River, which teemed with fish. So join us to talk with Jim about fishing these diverse fisheries and fishing with a colorful cast of characters like Fat Wally, Dick uh, Clevenger and uh, and Frank the Net. <laughs> uh, more to come on that. So uh, uh, be sure to add this upcoming show to your calendar. Just uh, click the Add to Calendar button below uh, Jim's fit uh, photo on our homepage, and you'll be all set. We'd like to thank uh, Fly Fishers International, Trout Unlimited, Wild River Press, These Fairy Anglers, The Ugly Bug Fly Shop, and Enrico Biglisi Flies for sponsoring our show tonight. Don't forget to visit our website at askaboutflyfishing.com and make sure you sign up to receive our announcements so you don't miss out on any of our future broadcasts. Thanks for listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio. We hope you enjoyed the show. That's it. Good night, everyone, and good fishing. Bye.